The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening is from Luke 2, 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the, of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, Merry Christmas. Thanks, front row. Uh, good to be with you guys this evening. Uh, as Garrison said, this is our first ever Christmas gathering as a church, so we're really excited to get to celebrate. Uh, just even thinking about the line from that song in the chorus, who would um, ever have dreamed that we could hold God in our hands? The beauty and mystery of the incarnation that God himself took on flesh, and so we get to celebrate that today. I've never met before. My name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. I'd love to pray for us, then we're going to open up God's word together for a little bit. So y'all pray with me. God, we are so grateful, and your plan that prophets for thousands and thousands of years foretold, the covenant promises pointed forward to that you sent Jesus, and it wasn't a surprise to you, it wasn't a plan B, it was your chosen will to send your son to take on flesh, to enter into the world in a little town called Bethlehem to teenagers, Mary and Joseph, to take on flesh, to live the life we couldn't, and yet die the death that we deserved. He didn't stay dead, rose again three days later, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and now King Jesus rules and reigns forever, and we get to celebrate that every Sunday, but especially today. We love you. Help us as we open your word to love you more, to trust you more, to hope in you more. Paralysis in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on January 30th, 1933, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler uh, became Chancellor of Germany, which is not how you thought a Christmas sermon was going to start. The same time, two days later, a theologian and lecturer and professor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer took to the German radio airwaves to denounce Hitler and the Nazi political party and all of his ideas that he had about dictatorship and all of that. And what happened is really began a 12-year period where Hitler and all of his followers really wreaked havoc on people in Germany, in Western Europe, really across the known world. And consistently, Bonhoeffer was a persistent descendant 
center of everything Nazi and Hitler. When uh, the Nazi political party took over the German evangelical church, they tried to infiltrate it with their own people to lead out in heresy and hatred of different people groups, Bonhoeffer and his friends started their own little private secret seminary just outside of Berlin. When World War II started and all of this massive spread of Nazi propaganda was infiltrating the minds of the German people, Bonhoeffer and his friends started printing newsletter after newsletter trying to give the people truth. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in the Tegel prison camp in 1943. And from this prison camp, he wrote uh, letter after letter to his friends and to his family, encouraging them to keep the faith and to keep trusting the Lord in the face of evil. And one particular or a few particular letters he wrote during the Advent season of 1944, just a few short months before he was going to be executed for opposing Nazi and Hitler. And he writes this, 39 years old, a few months away from his death, thinking about the birth of Christ as he's locked inside of a prison camp. He writes this, with the birth of Jesus, the great kingdom of peace has begun. I want you to think about this. They're in the midst of a global conflict like the world had never seen, facing up against great evil and great terror. Bonhoeffer says when Jesus shows up on the earth, he declares and brings forth a kingdom of peace of peace. We're going to read tonight Luke chapter 2, as Cole just read for us, the story of the angels proclaiming the good news of Jesus to some shepherds. And we're going to look at their song, what they declare and what they sing and what they celebrate. But what we see in Luke 2 is an announcement that's not absent from the proceedings of the world. That's not distant from what's happening in our lives. It doesn't forget about or negate the sufferings in our own lives and in our own hearts, but rather announces in the midst of all of that, a kingdom of peace has begun. It's the good news of Luke 2. So tonight what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to look at this kingdom of peace. What it means when God shows up in flesh and says, I declare a kingdom of peace. How that's actually better news than any of us can ever imagine. So Luke chapter 2, if you've got a Bible... We're going to look at 1 through 14. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 13 and 14 because that's the song and our series during this Advent season is on the songs of Christmas. But I want to kind of set us up with the backstory. So Luke 2, we're going to start in verse 1. It's what Luke writes. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. As you know, the story of that child is Jesus. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I think regardless of your church background, you have some familiarity with this story, right? You know a little bit about, okay, there was a town, and it was called Bethlehem, and we have these nativity scenes like this one where we know there's some shepherds, and there's a couple, and there's Jesus, and they have to travel around, and they show up, and they give birth, and it's fun, and it's cute. But I want you to notice here in the first seven verses that this is not some made-up fairy tale, right? This is not some fun story we just tell our kids where it's like, okay, here's the story of Santa, here's the story of Jesus, Merry Christmas. I want you to notice this is a real thing. Happened in a real time, right? When Caesar Augustus was ruling Rome, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It happened in a real place, Bethlehem. 
city of David in the region of Judea. It was real people, Mary and Joseph, not just cute nativity figurines, but a real man and a real woman betrothed to be married and expecting a child. God is breaking into human history. This actually happened. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So this is totally unexpected, okay? The shepherds aren't in the field doing their shepherd thing, like, hey, you think Luke 2 is going to happen tonight? Like, is tonight the night the angels show up? Great, yay, Jesus is born. No, they're just hanging out, being shepherds, doing their shepherd thing. The only light they have is some stars, the moon, maybe a little campfire, and suddenly it's like, boom, angel, and they're like, ah, a fear. No, nobody else sees that. That's the story. I love this. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel tells the shepherds not to be afraid. Why? Because he's bringing good news. It's the same word translated throughout the New Testament where we get our word gospel. He says, fear not. Do not fear. I am declaring to you the gospel. And this good news, it's full of great joy. It's better than they and us could even imagine. It's richer, it's deeper, it's more beautiful. It changes everything. And he says, notice, it's going to be good news of great joy for who? All people. The first announcement that this Messiah, this Redeemer, was not just coming to redeem the Jewish people, it was coming to redeem all who would believe and put their faith and hope and trust in him. This is good news. He continues, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The good news is that a Savior, Christ the Lord, has come. This is actually the only time in the whole of Scripture where we get Jesus' three main titles of Christ, Savior, and Lord all together. So nowhere else in the Bible will you see these three titles all in one sentence to refer to Jesus. And I think it's important here to notice what all this angel says about him. First, the angel says that he's a Savior, that this child has come to save that there is a God and he's created us to be in relationship with him. But when sin enters the world, it breaks that. And so Jesus has come to save his people, to save us from sin, to save us from ourselves, to save us, save us from the righteous, holy wrath of God. Jesus came to be a savior. He also came to be the Christ. It means anointed one. It's the, the New Testament word for the Old Testament title of Messiah. That he's the one that for thousands and thousands of years, prophet after prophet, has said, this guy's coming, this guy's coming, this guy's coming. And now Jesus here, when the angel says he's the Christ, is saying, he is the one you've been waiting on. He is the one that fulfills all of the covenant promises. He is the fulfillment of all their hopes. He's not only Savior, he's not only Christ, anointed one, Messiah, but he's also Lord. He's God become fully man. In a wonderful, crazy, hard-to-comprehend mystery of God, God takes on flesh and becomes fully God and fully man. And so in some weird, hard-to-comprehend-and-imagine way, this baby laying in a manger is still God and King of the universe, still holds the world in his hands, even as Mary holds him. He still holds all things together. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. And that's why I love Bonhoeffer's quote so much. He says, this is the inbreaking of a kingdom. This is not a cute, fun, yay kind of story. It's Jesus showing up saying, no, I'm in charge. I'm bringing my kingdom. It's world changing. It's game changing. It's good news that you can't ignore that Christ is born. A, a savior 
who takes away our shame and guilt and sin, a, a Christ who fulfills all that was promised, and a Lord who defeats all his enemies and reigns forever as king. That's only in the first little bit of Luke 2. We haven't even gotten to the song yet. This Messiah, this Christ, this Savior is the one they've been waiting on. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying. So one angel to make the announcement, then a whole host show up. It could be anywhere from a couple thousand to a couple million. Either way, it's a ton of angels. And they just, boom, show up. Verse 14, they sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want to spend the rest of our time tonight with this, this verse. I want to make sure you understand the gravity of what is offered to you in this announcement. Right? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I think we have a cheap version of peace offered us in our culture today. I think especially heightened in this Christmas season. So there's just kind of this generic as you just think about Christmas or as you walk around town or drive around town where it's like, this is fun, right? Like Christmas, yay. Like we got lights and we got candles and we got decorations and trees and presents and eggnog and Hallmark movies and Michael Buble just serenading me on my radio. Like there's just a sense in which like this is a fun Christmassy season. Yeah, right? No, just me. I love all those things. I'm not saying those things are bad. It's like, yeah, Christmas, great, awesome. And we get so excited and then we wake up December 25th and it's great and, and hopefully we can spend time with family or friends and we can just celebrate. And then we wake up December 26th and it's like, what happened? Where did my peace go? Where did all of these promises that these Hallmark movies told me I was gonna get, where did that go? And where did the eggnog go? And where did the hot cocoa go? Like, where did all of this offers of peace go? This is heightened in the Christmas season, but it happens through all of life. Right, there's a whole host of things throughout your just day in and day out living that are shouting to you, hey, you can find peace here. Look to, look to this for peace. Hey, you can, you can find peace in a different job. You can find peace in a different city. You can find peace in a different work environment. You can find peace in new friendships. You can find peace in a new relationship. You can find peace if you get married. You can find peace if you stop being married. You can find peace if you have more money in your bank account. You can find peace if you give more money away just over and over and over again. Think about this. What about this elected official? What about that organization? What about that? What about a vaccine? That'll give us peace. That'll give you rest for your soul. That'll give you what you really long for and want and we chase after it. And what happens is we realize, I didn't actually get peace from that. Wake up, December 26th, or whatever morning we wake up, and we realize, hey, this didn't give me what I thought it was going to give me. This didn't give me what it promised. And what happens is we read verse 14, or we sing verse 14 as a fun Christmas carol, and we're like, yes, peace on earth. We can do it. We miss the beauty that is offered to us, the fullness that is offered to us in the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. You see, peace is sort of a, a mega theme throughout the scriptures. So in the Old Testament, uh, the word often translated as peace is the word shalom. And in the New Testament, it's the Greek word arene. It's what's used here in Luke 2, 14. And both of these words mean so much more than just the absence of conflict or like that gooey warm feeling you have with some eggnog and a Christmas cookie. It, it's richer, it's deeper. It means something more like wholeness or flourishing, or rest. It means everything as it was created to be. When everything just feels right. When everything just is right. It's what we see all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the world. He creates the first man and the first woman. We see how things were supposed to be. Flourishing, rightness, wholeness. Let me get to Genesis 3. 
Adam and Eve rebel against God. They eat of the fruit he tells them not to eat from. Sin enters the world and peace, wholeness, and flourishing is broken. And then you read the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis 4 to Malachi 4, and you see the effects of sin and humanity plagued by sin. Division, discord, enmity with one another, fighting with one another. There's famine and hunger and sickness and death. People worship everything else but God. Humanity is is riddled with doubt and worry and fear and anxiety and depression, all of these things that are the opposite of flourishing and wholeness. Yet here comes the Messiah, right? Who the angels say brings peace. And so what we have to see in this passage, I want to show us tonight is this. Luke 2, the Christmas story, is God beginning to redeem the peace which was broken in Genesis 3 and restore his design of peace from Genesis 1 and 2. So what happens is God creates the world, right? Everything is as it should be. Genesis 1 and 2, peace, shalom, flourishing in all of our essential relationships. We have peace with God. We have peace with ourselves. We have peace with each other. And we have peace with creation. And then that's broken. In Genesis 3, it's corrupted. We feel the effects of this everywhere around us. But then Jesus in Luke 2 shows up on the scene with the great inbreaking of the kingdom of peace and is setting the world back together. So we're going to talk about, real quick, these four essential relationships. I got a chart. Some of y'all will love that. Some of y'all won't care, but I like it. Let's look at the first one, peace with God. So in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they enjoy a relationship with God, deep communion with him, and yet they rebel. They sin. They, they go against enjoying God's presence. And this is what we read in Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they had dwelled in God's presence. There was fullness and flourishing. Everything was as it was supposed to be. And now they're separated from God's presence. That peace is broken. There's a wall. God is holy. He's righteous. He's good. He's everything that is good. And they are not. And so they cannot exist with God. God shows up, right? Luke 2, 14. This is what we read. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We have peace with God that's restored. Peace, flourishing, wholeness. Luke 2.14 says it begins with God being pleased with you. The reality of the Bible, what it teaches us is that because of sin, God is not pleased with us in our natural state. Right? We're loved, we're created in his image, we have value and worth, but we're not yet welcomed in as sons and daughters of God. So Luke 2.14 says, hey, there's peace, but first God must become pleased with you. And how does he become pleased with us? Hebrews 11.6 says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. God is pleased with us through our faith in Jesus, through saying, no, Jesus came, took my sin, died the death I deserved, yet rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death. And so we turn, we repent from our sin, and we trust in him. We're offered peace with God. That's the first. Back to Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.25. We read this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before sin enters the world, there's no need for humanity to hide. There's no need for them to put on a front. There's no need for them to pretend that they have it all together. There's no acting like, hey, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm good enough. There's no just deep feelings of shame and guilt riding in their souls. There's no shame and no hiding, but sin enters the world. And this is what we get in Genesis 3, 7. It says, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Now, instead of no shame or hiding, we have souls wrecked by shame and guilt. So our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with our own souls are broken. Now, instead of flourishing and joy and life, all the things offered to us in Christ, instead we're riddled and wrecked by guilt and shame and anxiety and depression and confusion and worry and doubt, which are all forms of brokenness, all anti-peace. Jesus shows up in breaking of the kingdom of peace. As we read in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, this is Jesus' offer to us. He says, hey, all of you who are wrecked by shame and guilt, all of you who are tired of trying to prove yourself, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Instead of having souls wrecked by shame and guilt, we have peace flourishing internally when everything else around us is saying, ah, it's not good. When all of our circumstances go to the pits, when nothing in our life is stable, we can have peace and rest and wholeness and flourishing because Jesus says, no, you're welcomed in. You're invited in. There's grace here. There's peace here. There's rest here. Second, talk about the third, peace with others. So when God creates Uh, Eve. So Adam, he creates Adam first. He has Adam fall asleep, takes a rib, creates Eve. It's a crazy story. Genesis 1. Adam sees Eve and his first response is like, whoa, human. (laughs) What? Like it's kind of, it's basically, it's a song, it's poetic form. It's much more pretty than that. But basically he's like, yeah, someone that looks like me, someone that is like me, someone that I can relate to. And there's unity, there's harmony. God puts them in the garden. He gives them a purpose. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Peace is established. But once again, sin breaks everything. Right? And then we read in Genesis 3.16, as a result of their sin, God tells Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Because of sin, Adam and Eve aren't going to be unified anymore. They're going to fight. They're going to have conflict. There's going to be division. Peace is broken among people. I don't think I have to say more about this, right? 2020, <laughs> we know that there's no peace among people. Where we get in a microcosm of this year, amplified and magnified, I think, but really it's nothing new under the sun. For thousands and thousands of years, people have been fighting with each other and angry at each other and warring with each other and saying in-group, out-group, you, me, us versus them. I mean, if you read the story of Genesis, Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Genesis 4, one guy kills his brother because he's jealous. And automatically division enters, sin enters. We have no hope for peace except for Jesus entering in. Ephesians 2, you guys are getting the pattern, right? Peace established, peace broken, Jesus shows up. Ephesians 2, it says this, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Jesus comes and says, no, no more two, One, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. I'm bringing unity together. He levels the playing field among the people of God and says, all of you must admit, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. And he brings out of the two, one. And he brings us not only into relationship with God, but relationship with one another. We're actually brought into a forever family, not based on our social class, not based on our race, not based on our uh, income, not based on our country of origin, not based on our native language, not based on our political beliefs, but always based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus says, no, no more two, one. And he unifies us. He offers us true peace and flourishing with one another. Last one, peace with creation. Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're tending and cultivating to the plants, the animals. 
God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion, cultivate, make good things out of this. There's no suffering, there's no sickness, no pain, everything is right. Then you get to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. God says this to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now because of sin, the whole world is groaning and in decay. The very way that things were supposed to be, the very created order is no longer as it should be. Death enters in, suffering enters in, pain enters in, and we feel this. We feel the crippling weight of this brokenness when work is hard and tedious and cumbersome, when natural disasters come that bring so much destruction on our country or our world, when sickness and disease and global pandemics plague our bodies or the bodies of our family and friends, when we see widespread famine and hunger across the globe. All of these are evidences of the thorns and thistles. Yet the kingdom of peace affects this too. I love this. Romans 8, 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God says that I'm redeeming all things, including his creation. We have peace with creation. We can actually join God in redeeming the world. Peace with God, peace with our souls, peace with others, and peace with creation. So why? The question is why, right? Why all of this? Why does this matter? Why do we go through all of this? What's going on here? Why does Jesus, Son of God, take on flesh and enter into the suffering and brokenness of humanity? Why? One reason, for the glory of God. That's it, period, for the glory of God. We say this every time we gather together, all of this, everything we do is for the glory of God, but especially Jesus showing up. You see, you can't separate out the two parts of verse 14. Look at it with me again. The angels show up, a bunch of them singing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Can't separate out the two. God's glory goes hand in hand with our peace. This is the problem. So many of us are chasing peace everywhere that is not God. And yet peace is at the core of who God is. We see this throughout the New Testament. God is called the God of peace. Romans 15, Philippians 4, all over and over. In Ephesians 2, we just read it. Jesus himself is our peace. These two things are linked. If you have God, you have peace. If you don't have God, you don't have peace. It's like those bumper stickers, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like, no God, no peace, no God. And like one of them's like, okay, cool, just me. It's true though, right? You have God, you have peace. Here's what I need you to hear. Here's what I need you to hear. If you want peace, you have to have God. And if you want peace to rule in your life, God must rule in your life. Some of us really like the idea of peace. We really like the idea of groundedness. We really like the idea of being centered. We really like the idea of having just everything be okay and deep breaths and all of that kind of stuff. And yet we don't want to make God Lord of our lives, which is the very way we get the peace. He himself is our peace. It's through him. It's through trusting in him. It's through hope in him. The peace of God can never be separated from God himself and Christ himself. Tom Piper talks about it says this, he says, there's hardly a better way to sum up what God was about when he created the world, when he came to reclaim the world in Jesus Christ. His glory, our peace. 
his greatness, our joy, his beauty, our pleasure. The point of creation and redemption is that God is glorious and means to be known and praised for his glory by a peace-filled new humanity. At, At its core, the Christmas story is not ultimately about what you and I gain from Jesus showing up on earth. It's not ultimately about all of the wonderful benefits that we will gain when he goes to the cross and dies the death that we and our sins deserve. Ultimately, Luke 2 and Jesus showing up on earth is about God getting glory, about him getting praise, about him being first and foremost in our lives. It's the peace of Christ offered to us in Christmas. Peace with God, peace with our souls, peace with one another, peace with creation, all for the glory of God. Let me, let me end here. Hopefully I'm not, well, hopefully I'm alone in this, but if you're anything like me, uh, this year has been wild. Right? Like 2020 has been a year, y'all. Now, about a month ago, as I was just kind of taking stock of what was going on in my life, in my heart, in my soul, all of that, just trying to think through how I'm doing, I just kind of realized that I think the best word to describe where I'm at currently, where I was at then, and what I'm trying to figure out is I just feel kind of disoriented. Like, I think the best word picture for it is I kind of feel like a balloon that's just kind of going, woo. I mean, this year has been crazy. So for me personally, we had our first child. We moved cities. We sold a home. We bought a home in the midst of a pandemic, sight unseen. I started a new ministry job. We had new friends, new uh, rhythms and routines, just all of that. And that's just me personally <laughs> doing all of those things. Well, I and my wife too. But you know what I'm saying? That's my life. Not to mention what's going on in the world, right? A global pandemic, racial tension and division and injustices all around us global pandemic. We got election season, just all of this craziness of 2020. And so I just sat there and I was taking stock of my soul and I was like, I don't know what I'm grounded to right now. Like, I just feel all over the place. I just feel like I need something. And so I was, I was talking about this with some of the guys in my community group and just trying to let them in on it and let them know how I'm doing. And uh, I was just talking about how excited I was for Advent. Like, I was like, yes, if any, if ever there's a year to press into all of the things that Advent offers us in Jesus, hope, joy, peace, love, like, this is the year that I need it. And so they were just asking, like, what I'm planning on doing, Tim, what are you going to do to kind of press into those things and, and seek joy and fight for peace and all of that? And I was like, well, I got some really, you know, kind of tangible, easy things. So my wife bought me a coffee Advent calendar, which is 24 days of single origin coffee for December 1st to the 24th. You're welcome. It's great. Uh, so I'm doing that. We decorated early before Thanksgiving which we've never done before. And so mostly I'm just kind of spending a lot of time sitting in front of a tree, staring at the lights. All normal things. But I told him, I said, the number one thing I'm trying to do is just get with the Lord. Just go, God, I feel like I'm all over the place. I feel like I don't know where my soul is. I feel like I'm going after so many things that are yelling at me that they're going to offer me peace and control and security and safety, which I already want to go after more than I should anyway. And I feel like I'm chasing after all of these things and they keep ending up empty. I need you. Like, I just need you. I need you to ground me. I need you to tether my heart to you. I need to stop being a balloon that's just kind of floating everywhere and going every which way. I need your peace that is offered to me and Jesus showing up to earth going, this is my kingdom. I'm in charge and I'm saving and redeeming the world to myself. So if you're anything like me in this Advent season, I need you to hear this. There's an invitation for you 
that in the midst of everything else the world says will be, give you peace and bring you peace, that there is true, lasting, flourishing, and wholeness, and hope, and life offered to you in the incarnation and arrival of Jesus. And we know the world is not like it should be yet. Right, and so I can sit there with Jesus, I can get with God, I can say, God, I need you, I need you to show up in my life, and yet I know this reality of God's kingdom, that it has broken forth in peace, and yet it is an already but not yet kingdom. Right, that God is doing something, that he's redeeming the world to himself, and yet things are not quite as they should be. And so what that means is that while those of us who trust in God have peace with him, with Christ, we still wrestle Right? With shame, with guilt, with doubt, with disobedience. While, while we have peace with our souls, we still experience anxiety, worry, depression, all this internal pressure to hide or to perform. While we have peace with others, we still gossip. We still slander. We still hate. We still say us versus them. While we have peace with creation, we, we still have very real suffering, very real pain, very real death. But church, here's the good news for us. Advent is not just a season for remembering, it's also a season for anticipating. Let me say that again. Advent is not just a season for remembering, it's also a season for anticipating. That's the dual meaning and celebration of Advent, that we look back and we remember Jesus came, he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life, he died the death that we deserved, he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and we look back and we say, yes, Jesus has come, but as we remember the longing and anticipation of those first century Jews as they were waiting for their Messiah, our souls are supposed to look forward and go, yes, and there's also a day where he's coming again, not as a baby, but as a king ruling and reigning forever. And so we look back and we celebrate and we look forward and anticipate. We long for a day where his kingdom of peace that has begun will actually finally totally make all things new. And he started that work. He's redeeming all things, but there will come a day when he will make all things right, all things to flourish, all things as they were meant to be, where he's redeeming people to himself. And so what that means, what we're promised in the end is that we will have peace with creation. There'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. We'll have peace with others. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship Jesus together. We'll have peace with our souls. We'll take on new bodies free from sin and shame and guilt. And most importantly, we'll have peace with God. The Bible says he will dwell among us and we will be his people forever. So I'm reminded of one other Bonhoeffer quote in his Advent letters to his family and friends where he says this, he's stuck in jail and he's writing to them and he's writing about Advent. He says, life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. The door is shut and can be opened only from the outside. That's the dual meaning of Advent, that we look back and we celebrate what Christ has done and we look ahead longing for the day where God will open the door and Christ will return and redeem and make all things new. Until that day, we wait with longing. One of the ways we wait, one of the ways we anticipate is that every time we gather, we take a little cup, a little piece of bread on top of the cup, and we celebrate communion. This little wafer that you guys have, which represents the body of Jesus broken for you, and this little cup of juice representing his blood shed for you. The Bible says that every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, what we're doing is we're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. And so what we get to do today in Advent and Christmas and all of this season is that we get to look back and remember that Jesus took on flesh. That's what this wafer means. Jesus took on flesh. He became man. 
And he also shed his blood and he gave up his body for us. And so just a second after our prayer, we're going to take communion. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we would ask you not to participate in. Not because we, we want to outcast you or shun you or anything, but just because you'd be saying something is true about yourself that's just not yet. Rather than take communion, we invite you to take Christ. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith and hope and trust in him. I'll be down front after the gathering. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing and celebrate and remember and anticipate together. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the mystery of the incarnation, that God took on flesh, that you came to earth to a teenage couple in the no-name city of Bethlehem. 2,000 years ago, that you entered into history, that you entered into our story, and with that came the announcement that the kingdom of peace has begun. And in Christ, you are starting this work of redeeming people and creation to yourself. And so God, I just pray peace. Now, those of us who don't know you, that are separated from you, would put our hope and our trust in Jesus and experience peace with you, that those of us who do trust in Jesus will know and believe that we do have peace with you, that that will lead to peace with our souls, peace with others, peace with creation. God, help us not to lose the joy, the wonder of this season. And it's more than just lights, it's more than just trees, it's more than just presents and family and food, but it's God taking on flesh. Let us not lose our amazement and our joy at that reality that you came to history to save us. And we love you. As we take communion, let this be a tangible way that we look back and celebrate and we look forward and anticipate that you are coming again. Not as a baby in a manger, but as a ruling and reigning king to establish your forever kingdom. God, we want that day. We're ready for that day. We would love that day. Yeah, we trust you. We trust that you're on the outside, that you'll open the door in your time. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen.